After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man, this, this man will not be your heir, but a son who, who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how could I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, 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 a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they, they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they, they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun has set and the darkness has fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gigashites, and Jezebites. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's a, a pleasure to be here and uh, not get wet. Am I feedbacking there? Uh, <clears throat> this morning, in our perambulation uh, through the Genesis account of the life of Abraham, we come to a mountain of a chapter with a hugely significant verse, which you've already heard from in the uh, uh, all-age section, verse 6. This chapter is massively important in the study of soteriology. There's a big word for you, the study of salvation. It's uh, massive in the consideration of the provision, providence, promises, and purposes of God. And we're considering, of course, Abram, the name means exalted father, who later, uh, his name is changed to Abraham, which means father 
of a multitude. And as well as this being a mountain of a chapter that we're looking at this morning, Abraham is a mountain of a character. He is highly influential in human history. He is, of course, the father of monotheistic belief. There's another big word for you, belief in a single God. He's revered by Judaism, he's revered, revered by Islam, and he's revered by Christianity. A mountain of a character and a mountain of a chapter with huge and consequential consequences for us. But you know, as I've been studying Genesis chapter 15, it's not these huge concepts and huge consequences that spoke to my heart. What spoke to my heart was the juxtaposition of Abraham's humanity, and we'll explore that, next to God's divinity. And just how beautifully God responds to Abraham, or Abraham, <coughs> in his humanity. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. And we will, in passing, consider these great and consequential consequences. So I've got a, I've got a structure for you. Hopefully there's a slide with my structure on. Uh, next slide, please. There you go, a very clear structure. Uh, two sections, we're going to uh, wander through Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to look at how God interacts with Abraham. We're going to see promises made, verses 1 to 7. We're going to see promises confirmed, uh, verses 8 to 11 and verse 17, perhaps verse 18 as well, I wasn't quite sure. Uh, and then we're going to see the promised land in view for Abraham's descendants, uh, verses 12 to 16 and 18 to 21. And then we're going to use that as a template. We're going to use Genesis chapter 15 as a template for us. Because like Abraham, we're human. And God is dealing with each one of us this morning, individually and corporately. And we're going to see exactly the same, the same template. God's made great promises to us. God's confirmed those promises. And we're walking on with a heavenly promised land in view. So there's the structure for you this morning. Has everybody got it? I know we like a good structure. You like to know where we're going. This is like the title on the front of the bus. This is the journey we're on. If you're not interested in that, then get off the bus. Don't really, that would be very discouraging for me if you did. <laughs> so we start. It'd be really helpful if you could have your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 15. The verses aren't going to pop up. It'd be really great if you could eyeball the words uh, the Red Bibles are there. And incredibly, incredibly, I want you all to stand amazed at this. This is the only chapter 15 on the in the Bible that you will find on page 15 in the Red Church Bibles. Now, isn't that a wow? Page 15 in the Red Church Bible. So just eyeball the text as we uh, go through. Now, when we come to this chapter, I think Abraham, I keep wanting to say Abraham, he's Abraham at this point, Abraham is feeling very down. He's feeling a bit depressed. He's feeling a bit demoralized. Why? Well, Abraham 15 is Abraham 15 because, Andrew, because it comes after Genesis chapter 14. I said Abraham chapter 15 then, didn't I? Genesis chapter 15 is Genesis chapter 15 because it comes after Genesis 14. We've always got to read the Bible in its context. And what happened in Genesis chapter 14? Aaron took us through that last week. 
you'll remember that Abraham is a great war hero. Abraham and his 318 specially trained men, the Old Testament SAS, they go out there and they duff up the northern bullies and support the southern wusses. Is that right? Yeah, they duff up the northern bullies and support. And Abraham is this great war hero. And at the end of the chapter, we see a couple of things happening. We see Melchizedek, the priest and king of Salem, or Jerusalem, comes to him and blesses him. Wonderful. And we also see the king of Sodom, that rather evil place, offering Abraham a great reward. And Abraham says, Abraham says, I don't want anything, not even a shoelace, because I don't want the king of Sodom to say, I made him rich. And Abraham refuses the reward. And then Abraham goes home. After all this excitement, he goes home. Now, we're all humans. Well, I think we are. We are humans. Now, if you've been on a great holiday, or if you've been on a church great event, or if you've been involved in a great work project, and suddenly it's all done, and you go home, don't you sometimes feel a bit sort of, oof. you've come home and all the problems are as you left them. The tap's still leaking or whatever it might be. And you feel a bit down. What was all that about? It was great, but it's over now. And of course, Abraham, Abraham, as this great war hero, might he be a bit scared? He's just defeated those northern bullies. Do you think he might think some of those northern bullies might want to come and get him? Don't you think he thinks he might be a marked man? And also, I think as he's got home, he's thinking, you know what, I could be very rich now. I could have taken that reward from the king of Sodom. I could be very wealthy. And that's where we come to the beginning of chapter 15. And uh, I think that uh, my, my assumptions there, I think, will make sense in a minute. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, came to Abraham in a vision. Now, that little phrase, by the way, just in passing, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, marks him out as an Old Testament prophet or as a prophet. That's Old Testament shorthand for saying, telling us that Abraham is a prophet. And what does God say to him? Look how tenderly God deals with him. Fear not, Abraham. That's what it says in the old version. Or do not be afraid in the NIV. Do not be afraid, afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your defender. Don't worry about those northern bullies. They're not going to get you. They're going to have to come through me, and they're not going to. I'm your shield. I'm your defender. And you're thinking you missed out on that great reward, Abraham? Well, your very great reward. I am your very great reward. Look at that little, little phrase we've got there at the beginning of the world. Do not be afraid. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Can you see how God is understanding the psychology of Abraham and is dealing so tenderly with him? Can you see that? And that's the first two promises. There's a whole bunch of promises here. Um, Promise one, I'm your shield, I'm your defender. Promise two, I will be the great reward. Uh, but then Abraham, in verse two, is worrying. He's worrying that he's not got a, 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 an heir. And he is stressing and straining over something that will never happen in the providence of God. Do we do that? I mean, I'm sorry, without being sexist here, my wife is brilliant at this. She cooks up all sorts of horrific scenarios for the future and starts worrying about them. And I keep saying, oh, it'll never happen. You don't know it'll never happen. 
We better plan for them. I asked for a few examples of people worrying about things that will never happen, and um, Rob Farnden shared something. Now, he's not here, because uh, I was going to ask for permission, um, and it, it involves Dan Farnden, um, and I've not asked for permission to share this. So you'll all keep it secret, won't you, that I shared it? Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> Rob shared that Dan, his son, uh, when he was growing up, used to worry a lot about the zombie apocalypse. The zombie apocalypse. And Rob, say, Rob said, oh, it'll never happen. And Dan said, oh, no, it might. I hope you're well prepared. And uh, Dan would pester Rob to make sure he's well prepared for the zombie ap apocalypse. Now, in the providence of God, it's never happened. And here's, yet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but here, Abram is worrying about not having an heir. Can you see that in verse 3? And who's this Eliezer of Damascus? He's a servant in Abraham's household, and there's a quid pro quo going on here. Eliezer, you can inherit, but by the way, you've got to look after me and my wife in my dotage. This is Abraham's care home plan. That's what this is. And you see he's worrying, and he's making provision for God not keeping his promise. Can you see that? God's promised him an heir, and Abraham is worried that God's not going to keep his promise, so he's stressing and straining and making provision for God not keeping his promise. Can you see that? Now, what does God say? Does he get all upset with Abraham and say, look, I'm going to keep my promise? He says no. He comes to him again, and he says, you will have children of your own body. You are going to have an heir. There's the next promise that God makes. You will have an heir. And then... <clears throat> And then look, verse, where are we up to? Verse 5. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. That's lovely, isn't it? It's as if he's taken him by hand and said, look up at the heavens and the stars. Can you count them? Of course you can't count them. Have you ever been in a really dark place on a clear summer's night and maybe the moon's not out and you've looked up at the sky and you've seen how many stars there is and we can't see it around here too well because of light pollution. But I remember as a 13-year-old going on a scout camp, and we went to this place called Scotland, um, where they didn't have any civilization, really, as far as I could see. And I was, in this, um, I was in this field. It was a lovely, clear night, and I was looking up at the sky. And consider the vastness of the sky, and it was as if on that canvas of the sky, there wasn't a millimeter I could see where there wasn't a star. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever looked up at a clear blue sky, a blue sky, whatever colour the sky is, and seen all those stars? Can you count them? That's what uh, God is asking Abraham in uh, verse, where are we, verse 5. Can you count them? Of course you can't count them. Of course you can't. Now it's estimated, next slide please, Brian. It's estimated there are 200 sextillion stars in the visible universe. And if anyone's interested to know how that estimate's been arrived at, you can talk to me uh, later. Uh, I know Phil loves big numbers. Even your spreadsheet will struggle with that one, Phil. Uh, 200 sextillion stars in the visible universe. Now, now it's mind-blowing, so I just want to try and help you grasp how big that number is. Now, please, all focus. Are you all with me? Are you all focusing? Because there's a beautiful point here. You just need to work on it a little bit. Now, if you drive over to the nearest beach, which I think is Skegness, and you take a, an average cup of water, or cup, not got water in it yet, you walk down to the beach and you scoop up one cup of seawater and you've got some sort of power and you can make that dematerialise. You can make that cup of water disappear. You can't pour it on the beach because it'll just roll back into the ocean. One cup, 
dematerialize. Boof, gone. Are you all with me so far? You take a second cup, boof, gone. A third cup, boof, gone. When you've done that 20 sextillion times, 20 sextillion times, you will have drained the oceans of the world. I can see you're all looking at gone, get that? You will have drained the oceans of the world. That's 20 sextillion times. So my conclusion is there are 10 times more stars in the heavens than there are cups of water in the oceans of the earth. Wow. Wow. I promised I'd never say wow in a sermon again, and I've broken my promise. God never breaks his promises. Wow. Wow. Ten times as many stars in the heavens as there are cups of water in the earth. Now, why am I really laboring that? Because the beauty is here in the ancient Hebrew. I'm told there's a play on words here. You see how it says in verse uh, 5, you, can you count them? This word count, it's an accountancy term. And then we, when we come to verse 6, this beautiful verse, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The NIV has taken this word and translated it credited. It's an accountancy term. It's a value. You know in your spreadsheet you have credits and debits? Credits are good, yes? Credits are of value to you. And in the original, the link is between all the stars in the heaven and the credit. What, God, what this text is telling us and what God's saying to Abraham is the value of your righteousness is as great, if not greater, than all the stars in the heavens. Wow. Wow. Have you got that? This righteousness that's been promised to Abraham in verse 6 is of greater value than all the stars in the visible universe. Wow, you should be jumping up and down and clapping your hands because you know, as we come to the New Testament, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been credited to us as the same righteousness. Our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation is of greater value, friends, than all the stars in the visible universe. Gasp, wow. Clap your hands, say hallelujah and amen. Fabulous. Now, I'd love, at this point, to immediately leap to the uh, New Testament and start talking about faith in Christ alone. But Aaron, in his wisdom in chopping up Genesis, um, has given me the whole chapter to look at. But here's another promise. God has promised to Abraham righteousness, and he's also promised to him that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the heaven. You will be the father of a great nation, Abraham, can you see those promises? And in verse 7, we have the final uh, promise that uh, you're going to have a promised land. Your descendants are going to inherit a promised land. Can you see all that? So to recap, these promises made. A promise of protection, I will be your shield and your defender. A promise of provision, I will be your great reward. A promise of an heir and a people, descendants. A promise of righteousness with God that's more valuable than all the stars in the universe. A promise of the land, the promised land. And all those promises were made to Abraham. Abraham. Sorry, I keep getting that wrong, don't I? Abraham. I'm just going to say Abraham, and you all know I mean Abraham. <coughs> so, beautiful, wonderful. Now, how like us is Abraham? Verse 8. Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know? His faith, his belief just been credited to him as righteousness in verse 6. Two, verse late, two verses later, Abraham's saying, how can I know? He's a differing and he's a doubting and he's drifting. He's just like us. He's very human. Can you see that? 
And God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old. I don't suppose when Abraham asked the question, how can I know, he was expecting a grocery list. But that's what he got. Uh, Lord says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old. Why three years old? Well, at three years old, the animal is full grown, but it's still young. At three years old, the animal is at its most valuable. This is an expensive sacrifice that Abraham's about to make. A heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three, three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon. Uh, by the way, these clever um, Hebrew scholars actually think verse 9 should be better translated. Bring me three heifers, three goats, three rams, all three years old, which would mean you've got nine animals. Wow. And a dove and a pigeon. Now, it's uh, about to get very messy. Now, this, by the way, is uh, promise confirmed. Yes, thank you, Brian. It's about to get very messy. Uh, so Abraham brought these and cut them in two. Ooh. Ooh. Now, without power tools, that would be quite a task. And by the way, cutting them in two is probably a lateral line rather than the midline. So he takes a heifer, a big, big beast, and he cuts it in two. And he puts one half of the carcass that side and one half of the carcass this side, with the insides facing in. Getting very messy. He does that with the goat and the ram. And can you imagine what's going on here? You've got freshly killed animals, three, perhaps nine, making a pathway. And that area between the carcasses, what's that going to be full of? Blood, absolutely. I don't know who said that, but absolutely. It's going to, the blood's going to be pouring out from these big beasts. There's going to be a pathway of blood created. And on one side, it's thought, although it doesn't say, he puts the dove, and on the other side, he puts the pigeon. What are the dove and the pigeon representing? Well, scholars are not absolutely clear. Uh, but the best I saw was dove generally is spiritual. It could be God. Remember when Jesus was baptised, what did John see? He saw the Spirit of God coming down to rest on uh, Jesus' head in the form of a dove. Yeah, and a pigeon is, represents the physical. So this could be a representation of God on one side and a representation of Abraham on the other. Now, what is going on here? We've got all these animals killed, this pathway of blood, uh, a dove and a pigeon. What's going on? Well, it seems that in the ancient Near East, this is about 4,000 years ago, that when, say, two important people, say, two kings, made a deal with one another, maybe a peace treaty, they would do this. They would sacrifice an animal cut it in two, and they would stand between the carcass, and that would be them signing the deal. Uh, if you like uh, English idioms, this is where we get the idiom to cut a deal from. To cut a deal. This is how, in that time, they would seal and sign the deal. How can they know? Remember, Abraham asked God, how can I know? And God says, look, I'm going to cut a deal with you, Abram. I'm going to create this pathway, this sacrifice, path of blood, this sacrifice, this path of sacrifice. And what should happen is that Abraham and God should walk together through this pathway, basically both saying, if I break my promise, you can cut me in two. That's what's going on. That's what the kings of the ancient Near East would do. But that doesn't happen here. What happens is that Abraham falls asleep. Not surprising. I mean, cutting those animals up must have been... Quite a task, quite a task. And he falls to sleep, and uh, verse, 70, uh, verse 12, sorry, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, again, most scholars think that thick and dreadful darkness is the Lord drawing close. 
It's imagery of Mount Sinai. Remember in the Exodus story, uh, Mount Sinai is dark and lightning and thunder and it's very terrifying because the presence of the Lord is there. This is God himself coming close. And then when we come to verse 17, what does Abraham see in his vision, in his dreamlike state? He sees a smoking brazier and a blazing torch. And this smoking brazier and a blazing torch is moving along this pathway of sacrifice. Now, some scholars, my son included, <laughs> actually think this, uh, this, this is actually a theophany. Uh, theophany is a physical manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ before Bethlehem. And uh, uh, the theory is that it is the physical manifestation carrying a brazier. A brazier is like a little pot. If you think about priests swinging their um, incense, uh, that's the sort of idea of a brazier. And a cloud of smoke is coming out of this brazier. And there's a flaming torch. Now, that could be carried by somebody. And they walk down the pathway uh, of sacrifice. I don't, you don't need to go that far. It could just be the brazier and the flaming torch. Because that is symbolic of God. Remember in the Exodus account, what guided the children of Israel by the day? By day? A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God led his people. And this here, these things going through this pathway of sacrifice between the carcasses, it's symbolic of God walking the path of sacrifice alone. Can you see that? It should be Abraham and God, but God is saying, I'm going to keep this promise, Abraham. I'm going to keep this promise to you. It is not dependent on you. I will do it all, says God. That's pretty good, don't you think? So that's Abraham in the Old Testament. And then the other verses, my time is disappearing rapidly, sorry. Um, I won't, so I won't dwell on this. But now Abraham is given a vision of the, his future for his descendants. They're walking on the promised land, the physical promised land in view. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of homework. Go and read those verses. And yes, there's lots of uh, names of tribes that you're not familiar with. But just see how God is working his provision and his purposes out through the joys and sorrows of his people. They were in slavery for 400 years. But when they come out of slavery, they're very rich. They've got great possession. See how God is working his purpose out even through that. He is with his people as they're walking to the promised land. Now that's Genesis chapter 15, God and Abraham. Promise made, promises made, there's lots of them. Promises confirmed through this road of sacrifice and the promised land in view. His people go on walking with the promised land in view. Now we come to God and us. And it would be wrong, it would not be right for me just to say, right, put ourselves in the place of Abraham. Because those promises were made to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. And uh, we're not Abraham. And God's purposes and provisions have moved on. And by the way, I don't want to split a heifer in two this morning. That's uh, not at all what I want to do. I'm quite happy to sit there and get wet, even though I didn't get wet. That was quite nice, wasn't it? <clears throat> by the way, I had no idea what was going on. I hope you appreciate how calm I stayed with all the water slushing around. So, uh, we come to us, uh, and I'm going to take you through the promises made, promises confirmed, promised land in view, as it is for us as we look at the New Testament and God's promises uh, to us. But before then, I'm going to read to you an Aaron story. Oh, come on, let's have an ooh. 
I'm going to read to you an Aaron story. I know, it's, uh, I know it's a bit warm in here, but we can have some enthusiasm. I'm going to read to you an Aaron story. Very good. Right, you ready? Well, hey, me bonnie lads and lasses, how's it ganning like? I'm going to tell you about a Canimara, a bloke from olden times. Sorry, I'm going to tell you a boot, a Canimara, a bloke from olden times. Is that any good? Absolutely, thank you. <laughs> well, you'll be very pleased to know I've got a, a good friend at the golf club who can translate for us ancient Geordie, and he's, he's translated it into NIV English for you. So here's the Aaron story. <clears throat> uh, many years ago, a young man was caught in a storm and was nearly struck by lightning. As he sheltered under a tree, and in his fear, he cried out for help. Saint Anne, help me! His church believed that saints could be prayed to and this would give him favour in the eyes of God. Being a religious young man, he joined a monastery in order to find salvation. The life of the monastery was tough. Prayers were seven times a day, beginning at 1.30am. The whole day was filled with manual work and religious devotion. But the more he went on, the more he realised that compared to Almighty God, his life was filled with ungodliness. No matter where he looked in this religion-filled life, he could see that he fell short of God's standards. And I've written in there, remember the balloons, for people who was there. Remember the balloons. And he was terrified. So he tried as hard as he could to make his life acceptable to God. He regularly fasted three times a day. Sorry, for three days at a time. He prayed seven times a day. He tried to sleep during the winter without any blankets. He confessed his sins daily, but in all this, he never felt that he had satisfied God. After a number of years, he began to study for a theology degree, and it wasn't long before he was teaching the Bible at a local university. As he progressed through the Bible, he came to Paul's letter to the Romans, and he just couldn't get away from one small phrase in Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This puzzled him greatly, and he wrote in his diary, I knew that God was holy, and I stood before him as a sinner. I was condemned. I had no confidence that I could please him. I thought, and I thought over that statement, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And eventually I came to realise that I could only be right with God by faith and not by good works. The young man's name was? Martin Luther, thank you very much, the father of the Reformation. Luther said, once I understood how I could be right with God through faith alone, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through an open door into paradise. Fabulous. And I hope you can immediately see a parallel there to Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham's belief was credited or accounted to him as righteousness. And remember that righteousness is worth more than all the stars in the visible heavens. And the promise is very similar to us, friends, that we have in Genesis 15, verse 6. We come to God with our broken, hurting lives. We realise, like Martin Luther, we can never be without sin. We can never be good enough for God. If we're looking to our own lives, achievements and deeds as a passport for heaven, we have no chance. We've got about as much chance as a snowman in a deep fat fryer. 
That's how much chance we have of getting to heaven by our own deeds and our own righteousness. But God makes a promise to you, friend, to us, uh, friends. Romans 1 verse 7. I'm just going to read a whole bunch of verses here. Uh, it's, not, it's not like tucked away in the Bible. It's front and center. Though how it could be rediscovered by Martin Luther is incredible when it's there whenever you read the Bible. Anyway, that's another story altogether. Uh, Romans 1 verse 17. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the Lord. Romans 10 verse 13. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but all are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Friends, this promise of Genesis 15, 6, there's a parallel in the promises of the New Testament to you and to me. And remember again that that righteousness, brother and sister in Christ, if you're trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are righteous before God right now. And that is of greater value than all the stars in the visible universe. And if you're not yet a Christian, please mull on that. This is an offer. This is a promise to you from God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who trusts on Jesus Christ, will be saved. But if you're not yet a Christian, can I tell you, there is a flip side too. Remember that uh, most famous passage in the Bible, John 3, 16? Jesus says, um, for God so loved the world that everyone who believes on his... For, sorry. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that all who believe on him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Can you see the promise there again? All who believe, that's the only qualification. All who believe shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Yep. And then Jesus goes on to say, I don't come into the world to, to condemn the world, I come into the world to save the world. The purpose of Jesus' coming was salvation because the world stands condemned already. There's a default position. And God has provided an answer. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you reject that, if you turn your back on that, there is no other sacrifice for sin, we're told in Hebrews. And you continue to be condemned. You continue to stand condemned. So non-Christian, friend, please, mull on these things. If you're not yet a Christian, please mull on these things. The great promise of God, everyone who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It will be credited to him as righteousness. But there is no other way. There is no other uh, sacrifice for sin. There's the flip side. So there's the promise made, and there's a whole bunch of promises which I haven't got time to go into that the New Testament uh, makes to us. But how can we be sure? Promise confirmed. How can we be sure that God will keep his promises? How can we be sure? Differing and doubting Christian in our humanity like Abraham, how can we be sure? Well, what have we been learning from Hebrews? written to a bunch of differing and doubting Christians. What have we been learning? Where's the best place to turn? All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. There's the confirmation of his promises to us. In the words of that great philosopher and performer of the 20th century, Tina Turner, he's simply the best. He's better than all the rest. He's better than anyone, anyone I've ever met. So hold on to his heart. Listen to every word he says.
because he's simply the best. If you're looking for confirmation, don't look within, just confusion there. Don't look without, there's just chaos there. Look up, see him, and know your faith confirmed in Christ. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah. Um, in um, Jeremiah chapter 31, click, there's a uh, verse, a very famous verse. It's uh, repeated in the New Testament a, a few times. Uh, this is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. Most people say after that time is after the time of Christ, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is known as the new covenant or the renewed covenant. Now, Old Testament scholars, by that I mean people who lived before Christ, wondered where the blood was. Here's a promise of God, and there is no sealing of this promise in blood. All promises are sealed in blood. That's the way, to cut a deal, remember? All that detail I took you through. Uh, there was no blood here. Here's a promise of God. How is it going to be sealed, signed, and delivered? Well, we know. We know how it was sealed, signed, and delivered, don't we? Mark 14... Luke 22, <coughs> Matthew chapter 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The accounts of the Last Supper. Here is the wine representing my blood poured out for you. What did Jesus say? This is the blood of the, the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. It's writ large for us. When Christ died on the cross, he signed the deal. He sealed the deal. He cut the deal in his own body on the cross for you. Wow. He cut the deal in his own body on the cross for you. He walked that pathway of blood on his own for you. So these promises can be sealed, signed and delivered for you. Wow. Wow. Who is Jesus? Remember the uh, um, grace of all time service, the guest service? Who is Jesus? He's the incarnate God, yes? Fully God and fully man. So when he's walking that pathway, when he's signing the deal, he's doing it on behalf of God and he's doing it on behalf of men. Romans chapter 5, he's our federal head. He's the federal head of the, all his people. The federal head, what does that mean? Well, when Boris Johnson signed the Brexit deal, whether you agree with it or not, if you're a citizen of the UK, you're bound by it because our federal head signed the deal. Probably a more powerful illustration would be Neville Chamberlain signing the Declaration of War. If you're a citizen of the UK in 1939, you were bound by that because your federal head has signed the deal. And if you're a Christian friend, you're bound by it. Jesus has sealed and signed the deal of your salvation with God in heaven. Now, the beauty of this is that it's signed, sealed, and delivered in Christ's body there on the cross. The job is done. It's complete. Now, here's the thing. Nick McLeish is very keen in our Simply Preach sessions to say you can only have the thing once in a sermon. Is that right? You can only have the thing once. You can't have more of the things. Here's the thing, friends. It's signed, it's done, it's complete in Christ's body there on the cross. The thing is, you, me, we cannot mess it up. That's the thing. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's sealed, signed and delivered in Christ. Job done! And now maybe this morning you're thinking, oh, I'm having those horrible thoughts again. I've said those horrible words again. I'm thinking those bad things about that person again. I've behaved in that bad way again. And you're thinking, how can I be a Christian? Well, I'll tell you how you can be a Christian, because you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sealed the deal there on the cross. It's sealed, signed, and delivered 
for you. How good is that? Promises confirmed in Christ. So my time really has gone. I'm awfully sorry. Uh, I'm not really, but... Um, <clears throat> promised land in view. So where, where are we today, friends? Where are we today, friends? Um, it's really exciting today. Do you know why today is really exciting? Come on, you're excited. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And we're walking, if, if you're a, a Christian... Uh, you're walking with God towards the heavenly promised land. And he's promised he's never going to leave you, he's never going to forsake you. He is your companion on the journey. That's cool, isn't it? You know this faith, I mean, Phil uh, referenced it a little bit in the uh, all-age talk. You know, biblically speaking, faith comes in two parts. There's two dimensions to it. Dimension one is what you might call assent or belief. I believe, I assent to the fact there's one God in heaven, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I, I assent to the fact that Jesus came, fully God, fully man. He lived and he died on that cross, and he rose again. I believe that. And I believe that my sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. That's the first part of faith. It's an agreement, an assent. But the second part of faith is trust. It's something for the future. We thank God for everything that's passed and we trust him for everything that is to come. So in closing, as we're journeying on towards the heavenly promised land, maybe you're like Abraham at the beginning of chapter 15. Maybe you're feeling a bit down. Maybe. Or maybe you have periods where you're feeling a bit down. Maybe somehow you think, I've missed out on something in life. I could have done that and it could have been so much better for me. Maybe you think you missed out on something in life. Maybe you're feeling fearful of something. Maybe you feel like you're a marked man or a marked woman. You know, this morning, through God's word, the beginning of Genesis chapter 15, God comes alongside you and says, we're on this journey together. He puts his arm around you and says, fear not. Fear not. I am your shield. I am your defender. I will be your great reward. May God bless you. Promises made. He's made loads. Promises confirmed. They're all yes and amen in Christ Jesus on that cross. And now we walk on to that heavenly promised land and we walk on trusting in our God. We trust in thee, our shield and our defender. May God bless you. Thank you for being so patient with me. Amen.